Our Holy Father, we plead in earnest with you now as we open your holy scriptures that we'll not hear them proclaimed in vain, that the words of exposition would not fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. But we pray, Heavenly Father, for the great ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to accompany both the delivery and the hearing and thereby the receiving of your word this day. And we pray, Lord, that as your saints are refreshed to hear once again the glorious truth of the glorious gospel, may this message today bring a greater assurance of faith to your dear people. And Lord, for those who have yet to close with Christ in true conversion, we pray that by your sovereign and omnipotent grace, through the ministry of your word, may this be the day of genuine salvation for those who have not yet converted truly and savingly to Christ Jesus as their Lord and Redeemer. These cares we roll on you now for the sake of Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen and amen. I do invite you this morning to take the word of God and let's turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. We're going to begin reading at verse 21 of Romans 3. And we're going to read all the way to verse 26, 21 through 26 of Romans 3. Though the exposition this morning is going to be fixed on verses 22 through 25. We'll begin at verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of the living God. We live in a day and age where the most essential and fundamental problem facing the church at large is the loss of the gospel. Local churches, even claiming to be evangelical, have set aside the truth of the gospel for the sake of numbers and results, which look very impressive by worldly standards, but it has been gained at the cost of truncating the gospel of Jesus Christ. What matters most today for many churches in the name of success is having the right personality, the right music, the right location, and the right schedule to be as seeker-sensitive and culturally relevant as possible meeting the felt needs of the so-called unchurched. Therefore, rather than being gospel-driven, the majority of modern churches are market-driven where the biblical doctrines of the gospel are played down to the very point of extinction for the sake 
of being a user-friendly church. Of course, the sad and frightening results of losing the gospel is the pervasive ignorance of saving truth, which is being replaced by a man-centered message which does not take serious the cross of Christ, the sin of man, the wrath of God, and eternal punishment. In fact, these gospel doctrines are deliberately removed from the preacher's message so that no one will be offended and leave the church. The gospel, therefore, in their minds is simply too serious and too narrow for churches to embrace and proclaim if they expect to grow in a, religious, in a religiously pluralistic culture. Thus, the greatest need of the hour in the life of the church, since the greatest problem is the loss of the gospel, then the greatest need is the recovery of the gospel. Which is why the greatest question we need to be raising at this hour is simply this. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, according to the surveying and polling in the church by men like George Barna, James Hunter, and others, to ask the question, what is the gospel, is astonishingly, it is astonishingly relevant by the results of their surveys. For example, 77% of professing evangelical Christians believe that man is basically good by nature. 77%. So the biblical doctrine then of original sin is no longer believed by the majority of those in the church. This means that to affirm that man is a sinner by nature as the result of Adam's fall is not held as a doctrinal conviction by most people who claim to be Christian. Another survey asked about views of salvation and the results, as you can imagine, were very alarming. 87% insisted that God helps those in salvation who help themselves. 87%. But then another statistic, which to me is the most shocking, over 50%, over 50% believe that all good people will go to heaven without having Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, what these polls are telling us is that the conviction held by the majority of professing Christians in America betray the fact that they have no idea as to what the saving gospel really is. Of course, these polls are also betraying a more deeper problem, which is an unregenerate church membership. But the fact that so many people who fill church pews would be so clueless as to what the gospel is certainly points to the larger and greater quandary, which I've been contending that the gospel has been lost. And where the gospel has primarily vanished in our day is at its very heart. In other words, the heart of the gospel itself has faded away from many pulpits and pews, in, listen, intentionally in most cases for the sake of the church becoming more acceptable, tolerable, and relevant in our modern day culture. This means, to be more precise, the biblical doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Jesus Christ alone, is a doctrine which by and large provokes the deepest offense and backlash from people at every level of society. Now why is this? Why would there be such a reaction to the heart of the gospel? Well, the reason for the offense taken toward the heart of the gospel is the same reason it has been offensive to every generation through history since it has been preached. First of all, it is because no one wants to hear that to be right with God is entirely dependent on what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is very offensive. Very offensive to many, many people. Second of all, no one wants to hear that they contribute nothing to their salvation. But rather, the salvation is all of grace, excluding man's works. That is always very offensive. Above all, however, no one wants to hear that they are sinful and unrighteous by nature 
And thus their greatest need is a righteousness which God provides through Christ alone. No one really wants to hear that. You see, each of these statements express the heart of the gospel, which is summed up in the biblical word justification. And yet the heart of the gospel is ignored, it is downplayed, or it is even willfully rejected by men in churches who claim to be Christian. Is it any wonder, as I've said, that the preeminent demand of the hour in the church is recovering the gospel? And specifically, it is recovering the heart of the gospel, which is captured and understood in the biblical doctrine of justification. Well, with this in mind, I want to draw your attention this morning to Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 25, where I want us to unpack from this passage the heart of the gospel, which is the doctrine of justification. And specifically, I want to underscore the meaning and the method of justification. The meaning and the method of justification as we see it right here in Romans 3, 22 through 25. So to begin with, let's consider first the meaning of justification. Now, before we define the doctrine of justification, I want to begin under this first major point by helping us get a sense of just how really important this gospel truth is. Why should this doctrine matter so much to us? Well, to answer this question, let's just consider what others in church history have said regarding this particular doctrine. During the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the doctrine of justification was considered the material cause of the Reformation. In other words, it was the core issue of the debate with medieval Catholicism. And for Martin Luther, who was the catalyst of this debate and the chief architect of the Reformation as a whole, he said of justification, the article of justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscience before God. Without this article, the world is utter death and darkness. On another occasion, Luther declared, If the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. But perhaps the most well-known, the most famous statement Luther ever made concerning justification was this. He said, it is the article of faith that decides whether the church is standing or falling. What did Luther mean by this? He meant that when justification is understood, when it is believed and preached as the Bible teaches it, then the church stands in the spirit and power of God's grace through Jesus Christ. But when and where this doctrine is neglected, overshadowed, or denied as it was and still is today by the Roman Catholic Church, then the church loses its vitality and power in God's grace and becomes virtually an institution of spiritual death and darkness. John Calvin, who was Luther's contemporary, serving to reform Geneva, Switzerland, also shared the same sentiments as Luther did regarding justification. Calvin declared, The doctrine of justification is the principal ground on which religion must be supported. So it requires greater care and attention. For unless you understand, first of all, what your position is before God and what the judgment is which he passes upon you, you have no foundation on which your salvation can be laid or on which piety towards God can be reared. Calvin's point is very simple. The doctrine of justification is basic or foundational to salvation because it contains the essence of how a person is made right with God. But from Calvin and Luther in the 16th century, let's fast forward to the 19th century and pay attention to another great voice, namely Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who also attached crucial importance to justification as well. Spurgeon once remarked, The doctrine of justification is very much to my ministry 
what bread and salt are to the table. As often as the table is set, there are those necessary things. This is the very salt of the gospel. It is impossible to bring it forward too often. It is the soul-saving doctrine. It is the foundation doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But perhaps Spurgeon's strongest statement concerning this doctrine was when he said, Any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Christ another method of salvation is a harlot church. Strong language. You know, I wonder how many churches in our day would suffer under that very terrible indictment. Considering one final voice to weigh in on this vital, vitally important doctrine of justification, let's take in what Dr. J.I. Packer said as a part of an introductory essay that he wrote for the republication of James Buchanan's classic work on this very subject. In memorable words that only Packer could write, he said this, For the doctrine of justification is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. The doctrines of election, of effectual calling, regeneration, and repentance, of adoption, of prayer, of the church, the ministry, and the sacraments have all to be interpreted and understood in the light of justification. When Protestants let the thought of justification drop out of their minds, the true knowledge of salvation drops out with it and cannot be restored till the truth of justification is back in its proper place. When Atlas falls, everything that rested on his shoulders comes crashing down too. Now, let's just take a moment to let the comments of these godly men sink in. Beloved, how many of us could honestly say that the doctrine of justification is felt and understood in our own hearts like these men have described? Do we see this doctrine as the article upon which the church stands or falls? Do we see this doctrine as the salt of the gospel and a great tester as to the fidelity of the church to Christ. And does, does this doctrine of justification, does it hold so much weight in our hearts and understanding that we would agree with Packer? It is like Atlas bearing the entire world of the evangelical knowledge of saving, pay, saving faith upon his shoulders. How would we answer these questions? Well, whatever our answer would be, this one thing I'm convinced of. The church in our day needs understanding and clarity as to the biblical doctrine of justification if, in fact, the gospel is going to be truly recovered. So with that said, let's now turn to our principal point under this first major section of our study, which is the meaning of justification. Now, since we're seeking to define this term as it is couched in Romans 3, 22 through 25, we must begin by understanding this doctrine in the larger context of Paul's letter to the church at Rome and then the immediate context in which the actual term is used in Romans 3, 24. First of all, the doctrine of justification is covered directly in Romans from chapters 3 through 5 and then seats itself as the foundation for the rest of Paul's larger exposition of the gospel, which goes on to the end of his letter. In the immediate context of Romans 3.24, where the verb form of justification is used in a redemptive context, Paul has just completed a long exposition from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3 and verse 20, where he has described all the world guilty before God because of their sin. That is, Jew and Greek together are under the power and control of sin, which has infected, enslaved, and corrupted every part of their nature. Therefore, all the human race has no hope to gain the approval of God by their own merits. Moreover, it is God's law 
that has rendered the verdict of condemnation upon all men. So the law of God, that is his written revelation, which in this context is actually referring to the entire Old Testament canon, has declared a judicial sentence upon all the world. And this is that sentence, that they are guilty of sin against God, which is the transgression of his law. And the result of this guilty verdict has silenced the world under divine condemnation, where there is no hope for anyone to be justified in God's sight by works of the law, which are the demands of the law. In other words, man in his sin is under the curse and condemnation of God's law, and there is nothing he can do by his own merits to escape this judgment. Hence, he is guilty of breaking God's law, and nothing, absolutely nothing he attempts will absolve or free him from this guilt. The reason for this is twofold. First, God is the lawgiver, is holy and just and immutable. That is unchanging. So his law, which is the expression of his holiness and justice, will not break nor change in respect to its demands. God's law does not curve nor bend nor stretch like the laws of men do. Human laws can be bendable and therefore relax their demands by not receiving full satisfaction for the justice they require. But God's law, God's law cannot and will not be manipulated like that because God himself cannot and will not be manipulated like that. What God declares by his law will be met to full satisfaction. Justice will be fulfilled. Secondly, what God's law demands in respect to all men is, on the one hand, perfect obedience to the law. On the other hand, condemnation for those who will not perfectly obey. So then, because all the world is guilty of breaking God's law and cannot therefore render perfect obedience to his demands, then all the world is under condemnation of God's law and without hope to absolve themselves from their guilt. But it is right here at this point, because you see what I've just done, to, done for you is I've just expounded from 30,000 feet chapters 1, 2, and the first half of 3 of Romans. That's all of the teaching right there. But it's right here at this point where the gospel comes in. I've just given you the bad news. Now here comes the good news. Sinners can be justified by God in spite of their sin and the condemnation they deserve under God's law. That is the good news. And this hope for acceptance or approval by God is captured by this one single word, justified. So, what then does this word mean? When we read here in Romans 3.24 that God has justified us by his grace as a gift, what is the sense of this term? Well, in the first place, we need to recognize that when Paul uses this word justified, he is employing a Greek term that is utilized 39 times in the New Testament. Its basic meaning is this, to deem or declare to be right. To deem or declare to be right. It carries the idea of declaring someone by a legal or forensic act as righteous. That's the meaning of the term. So, this means they are free from all the charges that they were in fact guilty of in relation to the law. In the biblical sense then, to justify is to render a judicial pronouncement of the guilty sinner as not guilty in respect to everything the law demands. Or to say it another way, to justify 
is a divine judgment God is declaring of a sinner who deserves the full punishment of the law for his sin, but is now free from that punishment and treated by the lawgiver, who is God, as righteous in the sight of the law. So in the light of this explanation, what then is the gospel doctrine of justification? Listen closely. Justification is God's gracious and sovereign act whereby he removes from the sinner every lawful reason for why the sinner should be condemned by God. And thus in turn, God now regards the sinner as completely righteous in relation to the demands of the law. Henceforth, when we read here in Romans 3.24 that God has justified us, we need to understand that God is declaring that everything His law requires for perfect righteousness and the total satisfaction of His justice has been met in full. So God counts us, in a legal sense, as perfectly righteous. A divine judgment of guilty, therefore, can no longer be charged against the sinner whom God justifies. All charges have been dropped. His guilt has been taken away. He is now justified by God. That is the meaning of justification. But now that justification has been defined, there's always a question which surfaces at this point. How is it that God can remain just and holy while at the same time declaring righteous those who are not righteous in themselves but polluted and corrupted by sin? In other words, on what grounds can God declare sinners free from the condemnation of the law when, here's the catch, when they have done nothing? to satisfy the righteousness of the law's demands. How can God do that? Answering these questions leads us to our second point of study, which is the method of justification. The method of justification, or we could say even more accurately, God's method of justification. Looking in verses 22 through 25, here in Romans 3, this is what we're told once again. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, in the first two verses of this passage, Paul simply recaps his aforementioned exposition on man as a sinner under the wrath of God from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, and verse 20. The crucial thing to understand in these verses is that, first of all, we're being reminded, and obviously we need to keep being, being reminded of this. We are being reminded of the universal problem of sin. For there is no distinction, the scripture says. There is no distinction. For all have sinned. All have sinned. That's universal. No one is excluded from that. None of us. All have sinned. But second of all, in our sinful state, the scripture tells us, we are continually falling short or lacking the favor and approval of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then, being in this sinful condition, with no moral ability to gain God's acceptance and thus meeting the righteous requirements of His law. How 
does God justify someone in this position? How does he do it? What is God's method in declaring us to be righteous by the standards of his law? Well, based on verses 24 and 25, there are three ways in which God's word answers this question. Three ways. First, we are justified by God's grace as a gift. We are justified by God's grace as a gift. This is what we're plainly told in the opening words of verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. The term grace is referring to, as referring to God's salvation, it means his undeserved, unmerited, uninfluenced favor bestowed upon sinners who deserve his wrath. Again, God's grace in reference to salvation means his undeserved, unmerited, uninfluenced favor bestowed upon sinners who deserve his wrath. And in case we might be tempted to think perhaps we had some small contribution to this bestowed favor, Paul adds these words, as a gift. As a gift. The term gift comes from a Greek word that means freely. God declares us righteous freely by his grace. There is no human merit involved in justification whatsoever. None at all. We do not and cannot earn to be justified by God. This is an act he exercises by his grace as a gift. This means, therefore, that God does not owe us justification. He is not obligated to justify any one of us. We have sinned against him, rebelling against his authority, suppressing his truth in exchange for lies and replacing the worship he deserves for the worship of ourselves. That's Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. Right there. So we are in no position to earn his favor. No position. And to make matters worse, to make it worse... According to Romans 3.11, we have no interest, we have no inclination to even seek him in a saving way. So the only thing God owes us is condemnation and wrath. That's it. That's all he owes us. Condemnation and wrath. Moreover, his law demands this. Yet, in spite of what we deserve, God bestows upon us what we do not deserve. He justifies us by His grace as a gift. So justification comes to us freely without any merit or payment on our part. It is by God's grace as a gift. Secondly, We are justified by the saving merits of Jesus Christ. By the saving merits of Jesus Christ. Looking again at verse 24 and then on to verse 25. And are justified by his grace as a gift. And then note the preposition through, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this passage the vindication of God. The vindication of God. The reason for this is because here we see exactly how God can declare guilty sinners righteous and yet remain holy and just with the standards of his law satisfied to the full. You see... The only grounds upon which any one of us could be justified by God without squandering the justice of God's law was to have the full demands of the law in precept and penalty laid upon someone else who could meet them without breaking them. 
To accomplish this, what did God do? He sent his one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to meet the demands of the law and render complete satisfaction for the justice God's law requires. This means that Jesus Christ came to be our substitute and thus live and die in our place so that he could fulfill in his sinless humanity the righteousness of God's law in our behalf. And it is the obedience of Christ which fulfilled the righteousness of God's law that God credits to our account. And on that basis alone, God declares us righteous. On that basis alone. This is the only reason He can justify us freely by His grace. It is all because of what Christ did in our behalf. Now here in Romans 3, in verses 24 and 25, Paul highlights two aspects of the death of Christ which purchased our justification. They are redemption and propitiation. Redemption and propitiation. By redemption, we're being told that Christ bought us out of the slave market of sin by his own blood. The word redemption means to ransom by the payment of a price. To ransom by the payment of a price. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus declared that he was giving himself as a ransom for many. This is our Savior's work of redemption. He is our Redeemer because He has paid the necessary price which the law demanded for our sin. And what was that price? Death. For the wages of sin is what? Death. This is what Galatians 3.13 calls the curse of the law, which we are told Christ redeemed us from. Furthermore, as Romans 6, 1 through 4 teaches us, and we saw this last week, by the death of Christ, we all, we're also freed from the enslaving power of sin. Therefore, on the grounds of Christ's redeeming work in our behalf, God could justify us freely by His grace. The second word Paul uses to describe the price paid for our justification through Christ is the word propitiation. Propitiation. In verse 25, we read that God put Christ forward as a propitiation. Now, what does this mean? The essential meaning of this biblical term is to appease or satisfy the anger of another by the offering of a gift. So what Romans 3.25 is telling us is quite frankly the most amazing and incomprehensible news we could ever hear. God the Father put forward His beloved Son as the only acceptable gift to satisfy the justice and wrath of His law against us as sinners so that we would receive mercy and be saved. To say this another way, Jesus died in the place of condemned sinners by becoming condemned for us so that he could remove our condemnation completely to the satisfaction of the justice and holiness of God's law. This is the grace of propitiation. Think about it. Let it sink in. Christ took all our guilt and thereby consumed in his death God's wrath to the full so that God would remain just and yet free to justify sinners who deserve his condemnation for their sin. This then, beloved, listen, this is the ground. This is the ground of our justification. It is not in what we have done. 
It is not. It is all in what Christ has done in our place. So how does God justify us? What is his method? It is by his grace through the saving merits of Jesus Christ. By his grace through the saving merits of Jesus Christ. But according to Romans 3.25, there is one more element to God's method of justification. We are justified by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. Looking once more at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And then look at this. To be received by faith. To be received by faith. There are three important aspects concerning the nature and place of faith and our justification by God that must absolutely be understood. First. It is not because of faith we are justified, but by faith. Or as Romans 3.22 says, through faith. Your justification is hanging on those prepositions. That's important. Let me say it again. It is not because of faith we are justified, but by faith. Or through faith. In other words, faith is not the reason or the basis for why we're justified by God. Faith does not save us. Faith does not save us. Rather, the only reason or basis we are justified by God is in Jesus Christ and His finished work. That's it. What Christ has done is the only acceptable grounds for our justification. Faith, therefore... And this is hugely important that you get this. Faith is not a work. It's not a work because we're not depending on faith to be saved. But but our dependence is upon whose work? Christ's work. We're depending on Christ's work for salvation. Faith is simply the channel of or instrument through which we receive what Christ has done in our behalf. Secondly, the nature of true saving faith is looking only to Christ. Looking only to Christ. Believing the right things about Him, agreeing with the truth about Him, and trusting Him entirely as our only acceptance and righteousness before God. As the great hymn, Rock of Ages, so aptly puts it, Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. In a poetical way, that is a great summary of saving faith. Nothing. In my hand I bring. Nothing. No contribution. What am I doing then? Simply clinging to Christ. Looking to Christ. Simply to thy cross I cling. To his person, to his work. Martin Lloyd-Jones once expanded on this truth about the nature of saving faith as looking only to Jesus when he observed this. Listen. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work And he rests on that alone. The Philippian jailer posed the question to Paul. What must I do to be saved? And the answer of the great apostle was simply this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Who is the object of faith in that statement? Jesus Christ. 
Paul did not say to the Philippian jailer, oh, just believe. Just believe. Believe in what? Believe in who? But you know, there are people, indeed, there are men behind pulpits who will be that vague and that ambiguous and actually say to other people, just believe and everything will be fine. It's not, it's not having faith in faith. It's faith in Christ and Christ alone. Thirdly and finally, the moment we trust in Christ alone to save us, in that moment, we are justified by God and declared righteous forever. Justification occurs the very instant, the very instant a sinner savingly receives Christ by faith. This is the very connection you see with faith and justification here in Romans beginning at chapter 3, verse 21, and going all the way to chapter 4 and verse 5. In fact, Romans 3.28 puts it very plainly. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And the great joy we have in justification is that the moment, the moment we receive it by faith in Jesus Christ, it can never be taken away from us. It can never be taken away from us. Now, how is this? How is that? It's because our justification is not based on what we have done. It is not our faith that justifies us, but God, by His grace, on the grounds of what Christ has done in our behalf. That is what justifies us, period. This is why Romans 8 and verse 1 promises, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Now and forever. Why? Why? Because God, not man, God, has justified us by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, in conclusion, let me ask you. Are you right with God today? Are you right with God today? I'm not asking what you did 30 years ago, 20, 10, 5. I'm asking, where are you today, right now? Are you right with God today? Where are you looking for justification with God? Where are you looking for His approval, for His acceptance, for His favor? Where are you looking? Are you looking at what you can do? You know, many Christians do. Many Christians do. And I'm talking about genuine Christians. I'm talking about real, bona fide, born-again believers. They're so wrapped up and caught up in their remaining self-righteousness that they put themselves on this endless, tormenting treadmill of trying to win God's favor when they've already got it. They've already got it. And nothing can change that. Nothing can undo that. They've got it because of Christ. Are we so arrogant to think that somehow we can add to what He did to give us more favor from God? To give us more acceptance, more approval from God? Somehow Jesus didn't do enough? That is a torturous theology. And it's a false theology. 
But there are so many churches, churches, denominations, whole denominations that teach that and believe that. No understanding of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. No understanding. So, let me ask you my favorite question. A question I came up with years ago. And it's the only question I use when I'm personally evangelizing. Especially down here in the good old south. Where everybody and their dog thinks they're Christian. What confidence do you have that God accepts you? You see, you can't answer that question with yes or no. That's an open-ended question. That question is going to reveal immediately what you're trusting in, who you're trusting. What confidence do you have that God accepts you? Do you have a righteousness that God accepts? Do you have a righteousness that God accepts? Do you have a righteousness that meets God's standard and satisfies His law completely? Do you have that in and of yourself? Where is your confidence and, and on what basis is all your hope that you are under the favor of God? The vast majority of people in over 20 years I've posed that question to have never answered it correctly. And I am speaking of churched people. I am not talking about pagans. I am talking about people who have been raised in church, who attend church. You know, I told, you know I've told you the story before. When, when the Lord had me in purgatory and I was a seventh grade teacher in a private Christian school, thankfully purgatory only lasted three months. But I had to teach these seventh graders Bible Obviously, that was my favorite class. I couldn't teach them anything else, but I could teach them Bible. And, the first, and I posed this question to them, and I said, okay, this was on a Friday. This was on a Friday, so I said, I want you to write down your answer. I had a classroom of 35 kids. That was a nightmare all, all its own. But I, asked, I said, write down your answer on a piece of paper, hand it in to me. I'll look over the answers over the weekend. We'll come back on Monday and discuss. Well, they did. Wrote down their answer to the question. What confidence do you have that God accepts you? You understand, all, these are all church kids. And every answer, all 35 answers, were of the like. I'm a good person. My parents are Christians. I pray to prayer. Not a single answer mentioned Jesus Christ. Not a single answer was Christ. What do you think that told me is their, their teacher? I have to give them the gospel. And so I gave those seventh graders as much as they hated it. We started in Romans 1. And I took them through the first five chapters of Romans. And the one who couldn't stand, who could not stand it the most was the principal's daughter. Because she had believed that she didn't need to do anything as far as repentance. She thought she was a good girl. There was nothing wrong with her. Nothing at all. Why did I need the righteousness of Christ imputed to me? Why in the world would she believe that? Well, that's because her daddy and most of the teachers at that school, they didn't teach the gospel. They taught moralism. They taught moralism. 
And moralism is sending a lot of people to hell. So it's important we ask this question. And we ask it even to ourselves. Where is your confidence and on what basis is all your hope that you are under the favor of God? Well, based on what we've seen in Romans chapter 3, 22 through 25, beloved, we must never think that we can earn or achieve God's acceptance by our own efforts. All our righteousness, all our righteousness is shot through with sin and thereby unacceptable to God. It's unacceptable. No matter how hard and sincere we may try to merit God's approval. And we must be absolutely clear about this. Don't be like the man who said to me years ago that when he comes before the judgment seat of God, that he believes sincerely his good deeds will outweigh his bad deeds. And and therefore he's okay, he's safe. Don't be like that. Don't think that. Those are damning thoughts. We have nothing in ourselves to offer God for justification. Nothing. In fact, left to ourselves, all we can produce are works of unrighteousness and sin in spite of how good they may look to the world. But who cares what the world thinks? Who cares if you have the world's approval? Death is coming to us all, friend. And Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, what then? Judgment. So when you stand before God in the judgment, who cares what the world thought of you? Do you have God's approval? Do you have his acceptance? That's all that matters. That's all that matters. So in what direction then must we look to be truly right with God? Where can we be absolutely sure that God will accept us and thus justify us in his sight? There's only one direction. There's only one direction you can look to be justified by God. You look to Christ and to Christ alone. That's it. There is no salvation found in any other but Jesus Christ and his finished work. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Anything other than that is not the gospel. And it will damn you to hell. It is only by the power of the gospel that men believe unto salvation. Paul said he wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And why was he not ashamed? Because of everything I've just preached to you this morning. That's why he wasn't ashamed. And neither should we be ashamed as the church of Jesus Christ. This is our salvation. Let's pray. Our blessed Father, we thank you, O Lord, our God, for the glorious euangelion of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and by his life and death and resurrection sinners are truly saved for there is no other salvation but in Christ and we we are so grateful Heavenly Father that you have appointed such a time as this that you have called us aside this morning to hear once again 
the saving, glorious gospel of the Son of your love, Christ Jesus our Lord. For those of us who are truly your people in Christ, we rejoice to hear the good news of Christ our Lord again and again. And we trust, blessed Father, in you by the work of the indwelling Spirit through this means of the preached word of truth today that we will have a greater assurance of faith because of what we have been refreshed to hear. That you justify us freely by your grace through the saving merits of Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, thank you for letting us hear this once again. And Lord, we continue to pray that for those here today that have never closed with Christ in true saving faith, may your sovereign grace, your saving grace work mightily in their hearts, even right now, bringing them to a true conversion in Jesus Christ our Lord. We plead in earnest with you, Holy Father, for such mercies that you would visit, that you would visit each one of us with, for some a greater assurance of salvation, for others salvation for the very first time. In the name of our Lord Jesus we pray, for his sake, amen.